Lord, I pray that you would now equip us. Lord, we recognize that you've, you've made apostles and prophets and, um, and, and evangelists and pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for ministry. And God, I, I pray that we will be now further equipped for ministry. That the, this big, beautiful book would be encouraging and would be, uh, we'd be less daunted by its size, but rather, Lord, we'd see it as a big, beautiful theme park to be able to go on right after ride. So, Lord, I pray that we would learn and we would understand. We would get it. Please. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. This is where we start. Our whole goal in this comes from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, where Paul is telling Timothy to be diligent. To be diligent means to work hard, to be faithful at putting your heart into it. In other words, don't just slide and coast on this. Put honest effort to present yourself approved of God, a workman, who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of God. Now, that's a dangerous statement. Could you imagine in our culture, Paul is inferring that a person who does not rightfully handle the Word of God needs to be ashamed. Can you imagine the idea of shaming someone? Well, five years ago, that was actually a farther concept. Now we do it all over the Internet. Everybody's body shaming, fat shaming, age shaming, color shaming. It's amazing. Everyone's shamed for something. What Paul says is that if you really are walking with the Lord and you are a servant of the Lord, you need to be accurately handling the Word of God. And if you're not accurately handling the Word of God, you should be ashamed of yourself. That's what Paul is saying. Do you know how many pastors and priests that I meet that have actually never fully read through the Bible? And you start talking to them. How many rabbis I get to talk to or teachers in Jewish states, uh, things that are called yeshivaot in, uh, in Israel, that have actually don't even know the book of Ruth? And it amazes me when you start referring to these things and they look at you like you're, you're making up a story. Now, all of that to say, what our goal then is, is to be this, a workman. A workman means that we're not just heady. We're not just going to become theologians on the idea that we're just going to think about it. We're going to put this to work. But we're going to do that and need not be ashamed and because we're rightly dividing the Word of God. Now, I remind you, does anyone remember what Paul was as an occupation when he was out on the mission field and he certainly worked for money? Excellent, he was a tent maker. Now, a tent maker, what does a tent maker do? He actually is a glorified seamstress. He sews. That's how you make a tent, is you sew. And the reason I say that is this term, rightly dividing, is a sewing term. And the idea is putting a proper seam together. A proper seam is two things that are at the right place, put in the right place together. Now, how do we do that? How do we rightly divide the Word of God? We take the proper scripture, 
to the proper situation and they fit right. We don't just blindly say Jesus left, Jesus left, Jesus left and assume that that's going to solve the problem unless the question is, did Jesus ever have emotion? That might answer the question well. But, you know, it's like you don't just kind of throw out any scripture. The idea is rightly dividing means you, are, you know scripture well enough that you can apply the proper scriptures that are appropriate for the circumstance. And that's what we need to be. So that's our goal here. Does that make sense? Okay. Well, here we go. Quick overview of the Bible. There are two sections to the Bible. You probably already know these things. The first is the Old Testament. The second is the New Testament. Obviously, my goal is, if you're like, well, I already know this, well, then good. You're already jumping ahead of the game. We could almost make them B.C. and A.D., but it doesn't exactly work like that. But basically, the Old Testament will, uh, will be, uh, you know, basically all the major events in essence before Jesus, and then the New Testament, of course, starts with the announcement of the pregnancy and so forth, the promise of that pregnancy and so forth. Now, the Old Testament, you might not know this, but the Old Testament makes up 77.41% of the Bible. That means that the Old Testament is actually over three-quarters of the whole Bible, which means if in our time, to start this, to go through the New Testament, we aren't even going over a quarter of the whole of the Bible. Now, in both sections, the Old and the New, it can be broken up into three sections. But let me say this first. Our time span for the Old Testament starts with the creation of the universe. That's the way it says, in the beginning God created. We get that. It ends with Malachi's prophecies, which are roughly about 430 B.C. So the real question is, well, when did God create everything? Well, let me go with the best answer on that. And that is that, you know, we have B.C. and A.D. So we can tell you how many years since, in essence, kind of the, the, the presentation of Jesus. However, we'll even talk about that in a minute. But to the Jewish calendar, they don't, you know, if you were to ask them what year it is, they would not tell you that it's the year 2017. Because, well, the Jewish people, as you might be aware, for the most part, don't actually think Jesus is worthy of splitting time. So they actually take from creation till today. And all of that to say that if you were to look at the Jewish calendar, it says that this is the year 5777. 5777. So let's go with the Jewish calendar for a moment. So if we took 5777, we subtracted 2017, that put us at basic, if you will, kind of that time, you know, BCAD. And then we sense Malachi basically prophesied in 430 BC. We basically then take from the beginning of time, or beginning of the creation of the universe, till Malachi. And that gives us basically a span of 3,330 years. So the Old Testament covers over three millennia, 3,330 years. Geographically, Obviously, the main focus is Jerusalem, or Israel as a, as a nation, the place that we call Israel today, and its surrounding region. In the major events, Israel is deported to the place that is called Babylon, which today is Iran. That is roughly about a thousand miles away. Now, in between is Israel, and then Jordan, 
and then Iraq, and then Iran. To the south is Saudi Arabia. To the north, there's Syria. And to the west, a little bit, is Turkey. In all of that, by the way, today we would call that the Middle East. So we would say, in the simplest sense, that the Old Testament covers a general geographic area of the Middle East. You don't find any events really taking place in, like, China. And you don't find an awful lot taking place, for that matter, in places like Greece or Italy. Because, to be honest, neither one of them was any form of force to be beckoned with until pretty much Malachi and then beyond. So, the Old Testament really focuses on the Middle East. Of course, primarily Israel, but it focuses on the Middle East. That kind of thousand doing an oval, a kind of a rough oval with that area a thousand miles between uh, scripturally, okay, broken up into three sections. None are exclusive. In other words, you won't find teaching only in the teaching, and you won't find the one that's dedicated to teaching only being teaching. They'll be historical. So forth. But the first area is the area of teaching. That's number one. That area, it breaks up into five books. To the Jews, they call that area the Torah. Does anyone know what Torah means? It means teaching. So I think that they're going to perfectly agree with us on that. So it is five books. It is from Genesis to Deuteronomy, the first five books of Scripture. And that makes up 20.43% of the Bible. That <laughs> means a fifth of the Bible is uh, the Torah. Is that funny as that is? If you compare that, by the way, with the New Testament, 20.43%. You realize, in essence, that's only really just about 2% less than the entire New Testament. <coughs> the second area is the historical. And again, this is the focus, not exclusive. Historical, then, is the next 12 books. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, the Samuels, the Kings, the Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. That makes up 27.37% of the Bible. <coughs> Excuse me. And that takes us to our third section, and that area is the poetic prophetic. Starts with the book of Job, works its way through the books of David, if you will, you know, and as you Solomon, with books like Song of Solomon and Proverbs, and then of course the major and minor prophets. That's a total of twenty two books and it makes up twenty nine Point six one percent of the Bible. <coughs> so here's my question. First one. Which section has the most books of those three sections? Okay. Excellent. The poetic prophetic. We're coming in with a strong number one at 22 books. A great deal more than 12 or 5. Which section is the longest by percent? Takes up the most of the, of the Bible. That would be the longest. It would be the biggest percent, right, of the Bible. It would be the longest. Which section? Same, poetic, prophetic. Right. It takes up 29.61%. Scripture means it's the biggest of them. Which section has the, the least? It should be the, the least books. Not just the last, but we think. The Torah, excellent. The teaching, 
section. Which section is the shortest by percent? The same. Yeah. Yeah, of the Old Testament, absolutely. Now we go to the New Testament. The New Testament possesses 22.59% of the whole Bible. That's it. If you compare that, it's only mildly more than the Torah. Again, just a little more than 2%. Now, our time span, does anyone remember the time span of the Old Testament? How many years it basically covers? Excellent. 3,330 years. Well, the New Testament, on the other hand, starts, if you will, at the announcement of Mary and ends with John in God's Revelation, in the book of Revelation. Now, here's the problem. Perhaps you're familiar with this. There's no zero. It isn't like it went B.C. to A.D. with a zero year, like a gap year between them. Here's the problem. John, I'm sorry, we know that Herod the Great seeks to kill Jesus. Now, the problem with that is that Herod the Great dies in 4 B.C. So that means Jesus was not born in 0, or he wasn't born in 1. He had to be born before 4 B.C., because he had to be born while Herod the Great was still alive to want to kill him. Because remember, Herod the Great actually seeks to kill Jesus after he had been born, because the wise men show up, Herod gets tipped off, and then he gets ticked off, and then he wants him dead. So let's just go with the benefit of that and say that a year before that, that's 5 B.C. That, now again, that wasn't when Jesus was born, that was when the announcement came to Mary and said, you're going to have a baby. John, roughly, we know it's in the 90s, so just for the sake of it, let's say 95 A.D., which makes it then the span of 100 years. So the New Testament, on the other hand, only covers a section of 100 years. One century. Needless to say, it's a lot smaller, but it is also a lot shorter in time period. And it covers, in essence, the last date on that, roughly, again, the 90s A.D., and that's when John gets his revelation. Uh, the last event, for what it's worth, I don't have it written in that, but the last event in the book of Acts, because that's our historical portion, will actually be between 60 and 62 A.D., and that's when Paul is in prison for the first time. That's the last event until John gets his revelation. Now, scripturally, it's broken up into three sections. Oh, wait, I have one more. Geographically. Uh, geographically, it's basically Israel. Again, the focus is there. But, again, moving in the book of Acts, it moves us all the way to Rome. Now, if you can see a, a, a map, and I'm using it from your perspective, if you will, here, let's say this is Israel, and that would make this east for you and this west, right? Okay, so what we have is the Old Testament goes here and here. Does that make sense? Because it goes here through then to Jordan, and then it goes to Iraq and Iran. Well, the New Testament goes the other direction in sense. It goes from Israel, and then it ultimately moves to Turkey, which, by the way, you're probably aware of the fact, maybe you're not, that if you start looking at how many of the letters that are epistles were written to Turkey, for instance, Ephesians, Galatians, that's all Turkey. Uh, Paul was from Turkey. If you remember, he was born in Tarsus, which is the southeast corner. Well, it moves from there, essentially. And then it moves from there through to Greece and to Italy. So now we're going a different direction. And this is, in essence, really kind of roughly 1,500 miles. 
So the Old Testament actually covers less miles. It goes about a thousand miles this way to their deportation to Babylon is where, in the New Testament, Paul in essence gets deported to Rome, and there it moves us about 1,500 miles, because the distance between Jerusalem or Israel and Rome is roughly 1,400 in a middle miles. So let's just say 1,500 miles. And so then, therefore, the general area it covers is the Middle East, but also and Europe. We get Europe in the New Testament. Now, are there any questions before I cover just this last section in regards to scripturally? And again, I recognize this is all technical, but it helps us get a basic understanding. Let's think about what you already know now that you didn't when you first came in. And we're not talking about percentage, except maybe you may be able to say, well, I don't know if I realize that the Old Testament really was about was more than three quarters of the whole Bible. I mean, it looks big. I had no idea. You know, but that's kind of part of the fun of it. Now, in the Old Testament, we had teaching and then history and then poetic prophetic. Of those, which of those was the biggest? Poetic prophetic. Now, interesting as it was, God started with teaching, then he gave us examples, and then he promised us redemption. Well, that's really good news. Now, in the New Testament, that changes. It starts with historical. Our first five books, then, are historical. Interesting. How many books was it in the uh, Old Testament it started with? five books. The first five books were teaching. Now the first five books are historical. That, of course, is the Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the Book of Acts. That whole area, by the way, for what it's worth, takes up 13.8% of the Bible, the historical portion. Even though it's only five books, obviously, the meteor of the book. The Gospels take up 10.6%, in the book of Acts, 3.2%. Our second section then, which takes us, am I going too fast? Okay. The second section then, right, which takes us from the book of Romans all the way through then to the second to last book, the book of Jude, is teaching. Might I point this out to you though? There is no epistle written to an unbeliever or to unbelievers in general. The Gospels are written for unbelievers to bring them to Jesus. But the epistles are written to believers to help correct problems in the church and to help teach them, to equip them, and prepare them for ministry. Of that, there are 21 books goes from Romans to Jude, and that takes up 7.36% of the Bible. 7.36. Which leaves us one book left in the New Testament. There are only 27 books in the New Testament, 39 in the Old. Our last section in the New Testament is poetic prophetic. You guessed that. It is only one book, of course, that's the book of Revelation. Please, 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 if for no other reason but the love of me, it's singular. Please never say the book of Revelations. It's the revelation. And the first verse says it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Bingo. Bing pot. Uh, it makes up 1.61% of the Bible. So it's not even 2% of the Bible. Why does God spend less time on prophecy 
in the New Testament. He spent most of his time fulfilling the stuff that was already prophesied in the Old. And then points us to the rest. So here are my questions then. Take a look at those numbers again. Which section has the most books? Teaching. Which section is the longest by percent? History is right. Excellent job, Deborah. Historicals. And that's our first five books. It certainly takes up almost twice as much, if you look at it. Which section, and I have last again, which section has the least books? Ah. Poetic prophetic. Which section is the shortest by percent? Poetic prophetic. That's right. 22 chapters. It's not just chapters, though, remember. It's also how many words in it. Because, for instance, you know, there are certain books that have less chapters. Like, for instance, the Gospels don't have as many chapters as some of the other things, but they sure take up a whole lot. Do you know which actually has the most words in it? Which book? You know, I mean, in the entire Bible? And I could be wrong, but I actually think it's Jeremiah. Isn't that weird? I mean, who would have thought that? It doesn't have the most chapters. I mean, my natural impression would be like, well, Psalms, clearly Psalms. Yeah. But it isn't Psalms. Because most of the Psalms aren't very long. So there's a word count issue. Okay. So, so let me, let me, I want to take time to do this. Are there any questions, other than Marcy, who's got probably a lot of questions for <laughs> Are there any questions in regards to what we've covered in our first section? Okay, then do this. Don't look for a second and let's just see if you can pop it out. This is called reinforcement. The Bible's broken up into two basic uh, you know. <laughs> The Bible's broken up into two basic sections. What are they called? Excellent. Now both of those groups have three different sections. You don't have to give them to me in order yet. What are those three sections? Historical. Teaching, poetic, prophetic. Excellent. Now look at you're you're a group now. You're a unit. You're a unit here. Okay. Of those three groups, in the Old Testament, what's the first group? Without looking. Teaching. Teaching. Excellent. First five books. What's the second section? Mm-hmm. Historical. Excellent. Which means what's the last section? Poetic, prophetic. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Of those sections, which section is the longest? Poetic, prophetic. And which one has the most books? The same. Excellent. Which section has the fewest books? Teaching. That's right. Okay. And which section has the shortest amount of space taken? Teaching as well. Yeah. Interesting as it is. People are like, oh, I don't know. Those books are so long. Well, not according to the entirety of the Bible. Okay. Excellent. Now, see, okay, I'm going to ask you more questions here. Now, remember, this is all about just trying to get it right. Roughly how many years are covered in the Old Testament? 3,330. Excellent. 3,330 it is. Roughly how many miles are covered? Yeah, about a thousand miles. Excellent. That's about it. Uh, From the creation of the universe to what's our kind of final event in that? Excellent. Malachi's prophecies, roughly 430 BC, gives us that, that time space. All right. Then we have. So that's what that means is there's a space of time be, between the the announcement of Jesus' birth and Malachi's prophecy. 
They would call that a time of silence. Although things were happening, you know, I mean, the temple was being reinstated, you know, and, and was being uh, purged, uh, and that's the whole story of Hanukkah was from all of that. That takes place in that time, but that was roughly in the 160s BC. Uh, all of that to say, though, they call it a time of the prophetic silence because there really wasn't anybody standing up for over 400 years until John the Baptist pops on the scene about 460 years later. Uh, that's kind of noteworthy. All right, now New Testament. We have three sections. Those three sections are which? What's the first of those three sections? Historical. Excellent. Historical. Again, five books like the other. Our second section. Which one is that? Teaching. Very good. And of course, that one's our. That's got the most books. And then our third section. Poetic oh, prophetic. Excellent. Our book of Revelation. <laughs> <laughs> We're recording that. He just hit me. Pray if we did. <laughs> he's, he's talking about himself in the plural. <laughs> of those sections, which section is the longest? Teaching. It was the teaching. That's right, the teaching. And which one, um, or was it? No, it was the historical. The historicals were the longest. Which one has the most books, though? Teaching. teaching. So, that's right. Now, of that then, which one's the shortest? Poetic, prophetic. So, all right. Which one has the fewest books? Poetic, prophetic. How many years are roughly are covered in the New Testament? 100 years. Excellent. 100 years. Roughly how many miles are covered in the New Testament? 1,500. 1,500. Yeah. 1,500. Uh, and that's roughly from Israel to where? Oh, uh, yeah, really. There you go. Okay. Yeah, there we go. We got that. Okay, excellent. Okay. Uh, one last question then. Paul tells Timothy that he needs to be a workman who need not be what? Ashamed. Because what is he doing with the Word of God? Rightly dividing it. Which is what kind of term? What is it in reference to? Sewing. Putting a proper scene together between the two. Excellent. Well, I want to pray. We're going to take a quick break. We'll take a shorter break uh, this week, and then, of course, then we start. Uh, we have we started late anyway. Um, and then what will happen is we'll try to jump back in in about five, ten minutes most, okay? Because I have a lot to cover in regards to preparing us now for your reading this coming week as we begin the Gospel of Matthew. All right. So let's do this. Bruno, will you lead us in prayer for this time? Father God, I thank you for the of the windows and the people. God, for this family, um, that you've given us. And thank you for this time, Lord, to really digging deep into your word. Uh, well, not deep, but like, just to get so much more knowledge of it um, to understand the overall picture and the overall plan um, on a much better level. Lord God, I just pray as we continue to go through your word, uh, you continue to to speak to us, uh, you give us the like, brain capacity to, to mm-hmm. take everything in and, and I guess as much as we can and to just, um, yeah, that may, may you use it to, to give us a deeper desire to actually be in your word and actually fall in love with your word mm-hmm. um, by doing it Lord, and as we do that, so we just fall in love with you. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the best of time, I pray Jesus, in your precious name. Amen. Now we start our study in the New Testament. 
preparing now, of course, for the Gospels. Now, take a look here, if you would, at the word count. And again, these are kind of peripheral information things. What is the longest book by, in other words, the one that has the most words? What's the longest book of the New Testament? What's that? Luke, exactly. What is the second longest book? Almost. Acts. Who wrote Acts? Luke. That boy knows how to get, he knows how to write. He's like Dickens. You know Dickens got paid by the word? Mm. Well, it's like, it's the best of times, it was the worst of times. Oh, you, guys, you, you might as well write as much as you can when you say that word. Okay. Uh, now you'll see, again, these are the things that will show up in there, including, by the way, I, I really, really don't like that word Palestine, but Israel in the time of Jesus. And it just shows, these are just kind of things to help you. And it also has this map. Again, you'll see that in your, in your folder. That shows the places where the letters are written that Paul would write to to the churches. And that's just kind of important when we start to see that. Because if you look at those, there's Galatians, there's Colossae, and Ephesians, or Ephesus, they're all in Turkey. That's Turkey today. The Philippi, Thessalonica, and Corinth are all in today's Greece. Because that lip up at the top is still Greece, and Greece, it's Macedonia's Grecian territory. Then, of course, we get the cool one at the end there, and I'm only saying that because Deborah's here. That's in Rome. <clears throat> now, here's our deal. Imagine if God just wrote one story or account of Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection, how long that would be to fit all of the details. But God is a perfect writer, knows exactly how to set things up, and I know some of you have already heard this before, but it's preparation for our next four weeks, where he prepares us by creating what seems to be paradoxes. Paradoxes are two things that can't consist. Uh, have you ever heard of Zeno's paradox? Zeno's paradox says that if two individuals or two items are brought closer to each other, but each time they're brought closer to each other, they half the distance of their movement. They will never touch. They'll never get together. Because each time that space will get shorter. But that's sort of the paradox. Even though they're getting closer, they're never going to get, they're never going to make it. Now, all of that to say this. Paradoxes seem like things that they're just, you just can't put together. And that's the exciting thing. And here's the cool thing. God never told us we had to reconcile things that don't seem like they put together. What he expected us to do was something else. And that was not to lean upon our own understanding, but in everything acknowledge him. So we, that's where we exercise our faith. The greatest, one of the greatest places to exercise our faith in the areas where we don't understand something. And we go, well, I don't understand, but I do know that God's still got his handle. In the Old Testament, God promised that there would be four basic things that the Messiah would be. First of all, we know from 2 Samuel 7, when God speaks to David, that he would have to come from David's lineage, and he would have to be a king over all. And because he'd have to be a king over all, he would have an eternal throne that would never end, from everlasting to everlasting. So I expect him to be a king, superior, dominating, victorious over everything. But Isaiah makes clear that he has to be a servant and a suffering servant that is under everyone. How does a king, how do you have the same person be a king overall and a servant under all? Well, here's the cool part. It's a lot easier to look backwards and say, well, uh, duh, look at the stories. But he also has to be man who has come to redeem, to save, a saving man, a kinsman redeemer. We read that in the Gospel of Ruth. I like to use that term because it really is great news. And then, of course, Genesis 3, where God talks about 
from the woman, uh, uh, in the seed of the woman, and that's another thing to develop. But he has to be man. But then he also has to be God, because in Ezekiel 34, God told us that he himself would come down and wreak, if you will, vengeance or judgment upon the bad shepherds by being, hear me, the good shepherd. That is important, because when Jesus calls himself the good shepherd in John, he does so claiming to be God. If he had just said, I am a good shepherd, well, then that would have just said, well, you know, I am a decent shepherd, there's bad shepherds, and I'm a good one. Well, I get that. But for him to call himself the good shepherd, that means we already have a specific good shepherd we're looking for. Ezekiel 34 makes that clear. So what do we do? Well, God, instead of just trying to fit all of that into one, chooses then to write four Gospels, each one emphasizing one of those specific things. It is important to note, by the way, Israel was broken up when they wandered in the wilderness into four camps, four different quadrants, for which each one had a banner. The veil of the temple was, was actually there, and four different items were actually presented on there. There was that of a lion, there was that of an ox, there was that of a man, and there was that of an eagle. Interesting, because they're the very same things. A lion, like the king of the beasts, ox, like a servant, and like a man, and then, of course, eagle, like the idea that's the semblance of God, because the idea is that eagles fly so darn high. How in the world does that work? So, all of that to say that God has always been preparing us for these very things. And it's the very items that you see, by the way, even on these, uh, like in, Ze- in Ezekiel, these, these living creatures, and we see also in the book of Revelation. Uh, troublemaker. Uh, well, they also carry those same images. So they're consistent throughout all of Scripture, and God does the same thing here. So what God does is he incorporates individuals, each for the purpose, then, of taking the task of one of those items. God recruits a tax collector. That tax collector, by the way, we know, and we'll develop that a bit when we get to Matthew, that tax collector, who has a clear understanding of government, is going to be recruited then to write the Gospel of Matthew that is going to be the one that develops Jesus as the King over all. Because in the Gospel of Matthew then, there are going to be specific focuses. For instance, the term Kingdom of Heaven is exclusive to the Gospel of Matthew. You're not going to find it in any other book. Kingdom of God, on the other hand, you will find in others. Because he is the King over that Kingdom. And so it will focus, by the way, not on Jesus having one-on-one encounters, except one, and that's the enemy. But for the most part, then, it will show his dominion. We know from the Gospel of Matthew exclusively that when Jesus crosses the river, for, or the lake, for instance, that there's not one demoniac that's called Legion, but there are two. Now, that in no way challenges the others. But the point is, is that the others, choosing the camera angle, focus on a different point of his encounter. But for the encounter in Matthew, the issue is that Jesus has authority over them so he can lump them all together. Now, Mark, for instance, and we'll talk about him in a moment, focusing on Jesus' servanthood, the issue is dealing with the guy, this individual that's in need and the service he needs. So the focus is going to be tighter on that camera angle because the issue is serving this guy. But Matthew pans out and says, you can see there's more than one guy and Jesus is authority over all of it. You know, others like Mark will focus on a blind individual. Matthew will pull out and say there's actually two of them because the issue isn't a blind guy, it's blindness. And Jesus has the power over blindness. So there are several times in the Gospel of Matthew that the focus is not on an individual, but on a group. 
or more than one, with the idea, again, focusing on his authority or his dominion. That is really important. Because Matthew is a tax man, he doesn't go to a long school, he goes to seminars. And because of that, that's exactly how he teaches. And again, I remind you, it's the Holy Spirit writing the book, but using the hand, if you will, of Matthew. But he does it through seven distinct sermons, and we'll talk about that next time as well. So, it'll be the one with the most appraisals, for instance, but he's focusing on Jesus being king. Because he's a king, he has to come from the lineage of David. So Matthew will take the responsibility of showing us that he's proper in the lineage of David. He'll also be the one that will focus, for instance, on the wise men, kings coming and bowing down to this baby because it's like, see, he's a king even at birth. That's why Matthew is focusing on that. Does that make sense? Okay. Mark then takes the second one, and that is to be a servant under all. Therefore, it is more action and less teaching. So, I mean, if he's a servant, unless he's serving in his teaching, but what you see is the servant he's addressing is somebody who suffers and somebody who really does it in action. Now, many people believe, and we'll get there when we focus on Mark, many people believe that Mark is actually interviewing Peter. And there are several reasons for it. Some of the things quoted from Peter are this, very similar language, very small amount of, not just small amount of words, it's the shortest of the four, but it also is the least amount of words that, like, as far as the variation of words. In other words, it's a fairly simple language that's being used. You know. And all of that to say, he focuses on that. So therefore, the emphasis is on Jesus meeting individual needs. So now it isn't big pan Jesus having authority over all of these people. It's Jesus getting these one-on-one with individuals because that's where real service seems to take place. So there's a lot of that. And it's the least amount of didactic teaching. What that means is Jesus just teaching over the crowd. There's a couple moments of it, but not a lot. And even in those moments, if the, as they are, like, for instance, you go, well, that's kind of like a hint of it. You really want to get the full teaching. Well, then you're going to have to go to Matthew or Luke. Then we get to Luke. Luke, of course, is going to emphasize physical needs because he focuses on Jesus' humanity. Now, this doesn't mean Jesus isn't God. That's just not Luke's task. The Holy Spirit, through Luke, as a physician, really has a clear understanding of a lot of physical things. And as a result of that, he really does. I, I love this about him. He really focuses on Jesus' humanity. And it's really, in essence, it's kind of like what Luke teaches us is how to be a human being walking with God. It's a great book for it. Mark teaches me how to be a servant. Luke teaches me the king I, I'm sorry, Matthew teaches me the king I serve. What his kingdom is like. Now, with that, because he's a doctor, the way that he learns and the things he focuses on make a lot of sense. Now, as a human being, remember this. This will be really important. As a human being, there are two things that are stressed that are vital in Luke. And I think if we just took this with us in regards to our own application, we will do really well. One is the necessity and the, how essential it is for prayer. And you'll find that Jesus spent a lot of time talking about or praying talking about prayer or praying in the Gospel of Luke. For instance, when Jesus is being baptized, Luke makes special note that the Holy Spirit comes upon him as Jesus was praying. That's focus. That Jesus spent an all-nighter praying before he picked the 12 guys. Luke focuses on those things because as a man, as a human being, walking with God, prayer is 
foundational. The other is the importance and the necessity of the Holy Spirit. Where, for instance, in other Gospels, like Matthew, it'll tell us that, you know, like if you ask your dad for bread, will he give you a stone? An interesting thing for him to say after the temptation, if you think about it. You know, and he develops his life, ask for an angle, he'll give you a scorpion, he goes, how much more will your father, you know, I meant for your earthly father, who's evil, how much more if you ask your heavenly father, will he not give you good things if you ask? But in Luke, he, he emphasizes what the good thing is when he says, how much more will your heavenly father give you the Holy Spirit if you ask? Because again, that's an emphasis in the Gospel of Luke. Because as human beings, we can't serve God in our own power. We need God's power to serve God's way. Does that make sense? So when you see an emphasis on prayer or an emphasis on the Holy Spirit, now that may not that, that may not mean it's exclusive to Luke, but I guarantee you're going to find it there. And you say, well, that might be referred to in the others, but it's developed the most clearly in Luke. And again, that's the whole point of it. If you're like, where is that verse? It's about the Holy Spirit. Well, unless it's about teaching who he is, because that'll be a different story than our reliance on the Holy Spirit. Well, in that case, I was like, well, okay, well, if it's about how, the, how we need the Holy Spirit, now, well, I, I'm kind of, I'm, I will go to Luke first. I don't need that. And of course, therefore, you'll see, see things as a doctor, like his emphasis on physical suffering, Jesus sweating like drops of blood, unique to the Gospel of Luke. By the way, interestingly enough, only in one Gospel there's a particular girl who's getting worse and worse and worse. And it says that they had spent all their money on doctors and she only got worse. And now they're broke and she's still getting sicker. You know, interestingly enough, it was Luke who recorded that. Kind of interesting, he dipped his own profession to say that. God bless you. Don't be sorry. Unless you sneeze, do you sneeze on any of my stuff? <laughs> All right. Then that takes us to the last one. And that is John focuses, therefore, on Jesus, on being God. And it was important to recognize that in the Old Testament, when God presents himself to Moses prior to deliverance, and it's important to recognize that's how he presents himself as I am. Moses says, so I'm going to go back to these people and tell them you're going to deliver them. Well, what name do I give them? And God says, tell them. I am, says them. Now, you think, well, is that a cultural thing? No, actually, we all go, you are who? I am what? Well, God waits, if you think about it, since we're looking at that time period, 1,400 plus years to answer the question. And in the Gospel of John, there are seven distinct I am statements. Like, I am the bread of life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the resurrection and the life. You kind of get what points being made on that. It's like those I am statements are exclusive to the Gospel of John. As a matter of fact, 94% of the Gospel of John's original material. So when you see a I am the made by Jesus, that's clearly the Gospel of John, hands down. Does that make sense? By the way, if you realize, you're like, what book did it come from that Jesus said? You're really only going to go to the Gospels, a little bit in the book of Acts, and Revelation. Those are the books that Jesus speaks in. Now, clearly, he's speaking through people, but those are, I mean, it's like, well, when Jesus said this, go with the Gospels. That's probably your safest step until, of course, you're more familiar with Scripture. Because clearly, that's the account of him. Now, John, as a result of that, emphasizes believing. Because salvation comes through believing in God. Luke, on the other hand, I remind you, as a kinsman redeemer, focuses on saving 
The lost and the lost become a very important part of it. The lost coins, the lost rings, the, uh, the lost uh, son, uh, those are all points, uh, you know, sheep, I'm sorry, and lost son. Those all focus on, are in Luke. The Samaritan, the Good Samaritan, a very human story about a man in essence gets rescued. That's in Luke, for good reason. Because you see the humanity. Does that make sense? Now I recognize I went extremely quick. So now I'm going to start seeing, and instead, for the sake of time, and I want to respect your time, you know, because if you come really late the first night, then you'll be like, oh my goodness, we're going to be here until midnight every night. So let's go through the test together. And let's just see how well you would do. Now, obviously, what you have to do is you're going to have to use your logic to kind of play this out. With your understanding of who the writer is, uh, and, you know, and well, again, we'll be developing a lot of that. So here we go. I remind you, it is king overall, servant under all, man, and then God. Those are our four things. Here we go. So it starts with Matthew. Jesus is presented as. Do you see that? Okay, Matthew, Jesus is presented as what? Excellent. King overall. The writer occupation? Was a tax collector. He was not a chief tax collector, but he was a tax collector. Therefore, you find things that are like, this was worse, that kind of thing, because that was what he did. Therefore, his learning or teaching style as a tax collector was seminars or sermons. Therefore, the people emphasis are the Jewish people. Therefore, at least 67 direct quotes or Old Testament references are used. But the term fulfilled is used more in Matthew than in the three others combined. Like, um, and thus it was fulfilled, not just a general reference, but in regards to fulfilling a scripture. Now, Mark presents Jesus. Hey, bro. Mark presents Jesus as excellent servant under all. The people emphasis appeared to be Roman, or I should say Latin, or if you will, Gentiles which is an interesting thing. Therefore, there are translated things. For instance, it'll say, Talithakumi. What we're finding is we're finding these moments where Aramaic is being spoken, but they're all being translated. Talithakumi means little girl arise. Golgotha means place of the skull. Ilo ilio namas bachsani means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, we're assuming that the writer, or the readers, don't speak Aramaic, or you wouldn't have to translate it. It's kind of the idea. 
He's not coming to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. That's our key in this. Not coming to be served, but to be served. But to serve, serve, yes. And give his life a ransom for many. The third one, Luke, Jesus is presented as human, as a man, just a person. Obviously not just a person. His teaching style, as Luke was a doctor and he learned from school, in essence it was like a course. It is the longest, but it is basically like one long lesson about Jesus. That's not broken up into sections as much as we would be able to find for instance, in Matthew, where it's a sermon and sermon, or in Jesus's case, or in John's case, where it's like seven I am statements and seven miracles to kind of back it up. <clears throat> the emphasis again is the need for what two things? Prayer, Prayer and the Holy Spirit. Excellent. And because as a man, he's not just a man; he's a kinsman redeemer. He is coming to seek and save the lost. Then we have the occupation. What was Luke's occupation? He was a doctor. He was a physician. (laughs) GP. This is the one, by the way, it is really important to note, it is the one gospel where he makes really clear that he is actually doing it in order. Do you know that? The term he uses is orderly account. And it is the only gospel we actually have a very clear recipient. And his name is Theophilus. Theophilus, by the way, means God's friend. Great name. And since I'm God's friend, you know, it's written to me. That's T-H-E-O-P-H-I-L-U-S. Theophilus. By the way, he also writes Acts to Theophilus as well. Same guy. Theo, like theology, means God. Theos, like Phileco, means love, but it's kind of a friendship love. So we would say God's friend. Well, it's a Greek name. Not much we know. John, Jesus is presented as God, yes. In Exodus 3, what does God call himself? I am. Is that a knock at the door? Okay. Let's hope not. Dennis, will you run and check real quick? Sure. We always have the last person go and check just in case. Mm-hmm.
Oh boy, do they need to hear this? You know, it's funny they come when we're talking about Jesus being God. Okay, the recipients appear to be Greek. Again, we can't say for certain. I mean, you know, again, people that think that they're experts. It's amazing when you fill in blanks. God left, and if there are blank God left, maybe that's because it should be blank anyway. But therefore. There are things translated, like Ravonai, a rabbi, means teacher, Messiah equals the Christ, Kifas equals stone, Siloam means sense. So obviously it assumes, again, that you don't speak Aramaic or Hebrew. So he's defining those things here. Also, therefore, translating things, yeah. Therefore, there are translations. Now, quick Quick quiz on this, and we're gonna and we're we're done for the night, and we're supposed to be done by six, by eight thirty, and we just may actually make it. I'm trying to respect you guys on that. Uh, Matthew presents Jesus as king over all. Mark presents Jesus as servant under all. Luke presents Jesus as fully man. John, yeah, I'm sorry, man, kinsman, redeemer. John presents Jesus as God. Excellent. Now, by the way, now I'm going to start asking questions. Now, you have to, you know, look at Don't be afraid to give a wrong answer. <clears throat> but try to answer if you can. But you have to use your logic. Now, you're going to say, you only have four answers to answer. Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Which two Gospels were written by one of the twelve disciples from the Gospels? Excellent, Matthew and John. Mark, by the way, we will not find until the Gospel, uh, sorry, until the book of Acts, except maybe. In the Gospel of Mark, uniquely, there is some kid, when Jesus is being arrested, that's in his nightshirt, and they grab his nightshirt and he runs away naked. A lot of people believe that was John Mark. Who knows? We do know he's still young, that's it, because by the time we get to the book of Acts, he happens to be Paul's traveling companion through their first Paul and Barnabas' first trip. And then it becomes a point of argument and all that. And he winds up, we'll talk about that when we get to Mark. Okay. Um, and John, right. Luke, by the way, is a doctor that gets picked up on Paul's trip when he goes, uh, actually the second one, when he winds up in Troas. Important, by the way, because Paul, by the way, keeps getting beat up, probably had malaria. He needs a doctor on staff. You know, I mean, of all the things that guy needs, he doesn't need a publicist, he needs a doctor. And so it's great that God brought So that means which two Gospels were written by people that we need in Acts? Excellent. Mark and Luke. Now, let me say this. Hopefully this will make sense. When you observe information, you can put it into different categories, different places. But if you haven't observed the information, you kind of have to get it orderly in your head. When someone says, you know, someone comes in for counseling, like, let me tell you, here are six events, you know, kind of thing. There was this, oh, and then there was this thing, and then there was this thing. I'm like, oh, whoa, whoa, you've got to put this in order for me so I can keep it in my head, or it's not going to make sense. But if I had been there for those six events, I could put them in whatever order I want. I could put them in my theme if I wanted to, because I was there and I have that information. Does that make sense? The reason I say that is, Matthew observes all of that information with Jesus. Um, John observes all that information with Jesus, and they don't ever tell you that they try to put them in order. 
They could have, and certainly major events are put in order. But, you know, when someone will say, well, so which one is it? Which one, what, you know, which one happened in order? Clearly Luke, because that's what he tells us. Luke, I remind you, was not an eyewitness. He gathers all the information, puts it in order, and I have a feeling that's why Luke wrote it the way he did. Luke's like, well, you know, you, I mean, I get the because Hebrews don't think that way. They think by theme. So you kind of get the idea. It's like, well, look, at John presents Jesus, and by the way, it's the Passover lamb. We're going to see that. Mark, of course, um, uh, but obviously it's God. But, and then, of course, Matthew presenting in, in these issues of kingdom. But it's like, Luke's like, you know, if you just needed, like, a Greek-thinking mind that needs it just in order, here it is in order historically. I appreciate that. So it's just kind of important. Okay. This one is one glorious long class of teachings like a class. Which one? Of the four Gospels. Luke, excellent. Luke, because I remind you, he's a doctor, that's what he learned. This one is, in essence, a collection of seminars or sermons. Matthew, excellent, because he was a text collector. This one will have the most action and the least didactic teaching. Mark, as the servant. This one is, in essence, seven godly claims and seven miracles to validate them. John, bam, look at you go. Now, consider this. Only two of the Gospels are going to record the Christmas story. So you have to think about which ones would have to tell you about a birth of Jesus and which ones wouldn't need to tell you about his birth. Okay, Luke, why would Luke tell you about Jesus' birth? Yeah, and what is he presenting Jesus as? Human, and human beings are born. They're not hatched. Now, there's this whole test tube thing, but they're born for the most part. Okay, which other one would we expect to see the birth? Yes, excellent, our king. And, of course, the emphasis isn't as much on his birth. As a matter of fact, I challenge you, if you actually read carefully the Gospel of Matthew, you're not going to actually see the birth, like that specific event. What you're going to see is leading up to it and what happens afterwards. But the specific birth itself only happens in one Gospel, and that's the one where babies are born because they're human. Why don't you need Jesus' birth in Mark? Who cares when a servant is born? If he serves well, that's what's important. It isn't like, well, I don't know, you serve really well, but I'm really sorry you're Hungarian. Oh, well, it doesn't matter. If you're a great servant, you're a great servant. Does that make sense? So you start at the beginning of Mark at the beginning of his service. Well, what about John? Why don't you need him in John? Because God has no beginning. Beautiful. So, we have to focus at the beginning of time where only God was. And that's what it says in the beginning. You know, that's it. Was the word. The word was with God. God was Okay. Now, which one of these would record the most births, including exclusively John the Baptist? Luke. Why would Luke do it? He's a doctor. Big on births. Okay, this pre-birth story focuses on Mary, the mom, and her miraculous conception. Luke, excellent. Because you, you know, you can see Luke going, this is really unscientific. <laughs> this pre-birth story focuses on the would-be dad from the lineage of a cursed king. Matthew. In the book of Jeremiah, part of David's lineage was so bad that God said, let no great king ever come from you again. 
Interesting, he still worked it all out because it became Jesus' stepdad, if you think about it. This lineage goes from Abraham and King David. Matthew, why? King David. This lineage goes backwards, because the lineage in Matthew is, is the Hebrew way of doing it. This lineage goes backwards to Adam, the first man. Luke, first man. You can't get more. It's like, let's just chase that lineage all the way back to the first guy. This one has no lineage at all, but starts at the beginning of time. John, excellent. Look at you guys go. This one has no lineage, but starts at the beginning of Jesus' public service. Mark. Beautiful. And this account, wealthy magi kings, I almost said mega kings, <laughs> mega kings, come to pay homage to the child king. Matthew, do you realize it's only in Matthew? The whole magi thing, only in Matthew. And this account, lowly shepherds come to see a newborn baby. Luke. Oh, the humidity, not humidity. Oh, the humidity is what? The humanity of a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, but put in a manger. The only account that actually gives us this specific birth narrative. Luke, excellent. Herod Frisati asks, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Matthew. That was pretty easy, wasn't it? Herod gathers priests and scribes to discover that the baby must be born in Bethlehem, David's birthplace. Matthew. That's where David was born. That's where the king was born. So forth. King, da king Herod, threatened by the baby, seeks to destroy his competition. Matthew. Not going to be threatened by a servant. In this account, foreign dignitaries bring their gifts to the child king. Matthew. You wouldn't give him to a man. You wouldn't put him to a servant. And we know that there's no child, there's no birth story in the Nativity story in John. Jesus, going to dwell in Capernaum, fulfilled the Isaiah 26, 20, I'm sorry, 42, 6 and 49, 6 scriptures, promising that the Messiah would, be, would come from the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. Matthew, why? Okay. Excellent, because he's the Messiah, but also because it's fulfilled prophecy. Remember that this would be fulfilled? It's like, oh yeah, that's fulfilled. It's an Old Testament text. And of course, that is Matthew who's doing that the most. Okay, make sure you're on 24 now. The one gospel that says Jesus was officially named as his circumcision. Now remember, you're kind of just making judgment calls now, right? Kind of figuring out which one would that be. Luke, excellent. That's a very human thing to do. Boy, I don't even want to go out there for that one. Jesus wants for it. Jesus was presented in the temple with the sacrifice of the poor firstborn. Luke, yeah. Which, by the way, is important to recognize. This is what you do. There's a specific time after a girl gives birth. It's, by the way, a certain amount of time for a girl and more for a boy where you've got set aside and you can't go, you basically can't go out. And one of the reasons is, I think this has gotten brilliant, you're very susceptible to disease and so forth. There's been a lot of there's been bloodshed and other things. But then after all of that, you present your baby to uh, the temple, and especially firstborn, you actually do a redemption uh, of him. And uh, when you do that, you give, you know, this certain animal. It's like you give an ox, you give a lamb. If you can't afford it because you're poor, you get a couple turtle doves, and you basically sacrifice, just like sacrificing pigeons. And the whole point of that is 
is that clearly they did that with Jesus, but you know what that tells me is that the Magi couldn't have shown up yet. Because if the Magi had shown up by that point, Jesus would have had some gold, and if Jesus would have had some gold, they would have been able to buy a bigger thing, a bigger sacrifice. It's not just important because when we look at the nativity, and not to destroy it, but, you know, they clearly seem to have shown up somewhere and all that. But when you actually get the story in Matthew, it says when they came to the house. That's what that's worth. All right. Now, Jesus is a young man, was left in the temple at his bar mitzvah. When it's a boy to man celebration. Luke, that's what boys do. That's human beings. Not they get lost in the temple, but boy to man. Unless it's a you know black love rock band from the 80s and 90s, it's basically folks. This gospel tells us that Jesus was praying when the Father spoke at his baptism. Why? Excellent. The emphasis was on prayer. And as a human, we really need that. At Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit came down in a clearly tangible bodily form. Luke, excellent. The whole idea of that bodily form. Let's get to the temptation. This one addresses the temptation in the desert like one big showdown of power. Matthew. It's in essence the real king against the usurper. This one says that Jesus is, Jesus has shown all the glory of the kingdoms, and if Jesus was willing to fall down and worship him, he could have it. Could have all the kingdoms. Matthew. Excellent. This one exclusively does not address the temptation story at all. Which one? Why John? Because God isn't tempted. That's why John's like, I'm not going to put, you know, that story doesn't need to, first of all, it's already been recorded three times, but it's like when we're focusing on God, God's not tempted. A man can be tempted, a servant can be tempted, a king can be tempted, but God isn't. After being tempted, number 32, for 40 days, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Luke, why? Excellent power of the Spirit. The one that states that John and James left their father's boat in the hands of hired servants. Mark, excellent. Jesus prayed all night before picking his twelve. Luke, why? Prayer. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. Matthew, why? Excellent. I remind you, kingdom of heaven is only going to be found in Matthew. Okay. Anyone want to guess where Son of God is mentioned the most times? I'm, I'm making. I'm following this up. I have to check it one last time because I always want to make sure on this. But it is John, I'm sure. But there we go. Yes, in the Gospel of John. It would only make sense, wouldn't it? After all, does a servant really need to be son of God? Well, obviously, he's an adopted son of God. All right. 
This gospel emphasizes Jesus' desire to continue to have the one-on-one with people to serve them privately. Mark. Excellent. This gospel gives us 19 meals, 13 of which are unique to that gospel. Why? It takes an Italian to pull that one out. You are so right, Debra. Yes. She's like, ah, that's it. I'm reading Luke. Speaking of which, I am the bread of life. John, why? I am. I am. Excellent. Mentions the word believed, believed the most times. John, because God needs to be believed in. We need to believe in God. She said that way. I am the light of the world. John, there's our I am. Jesus sweats like like blood, drops like blood in this one uniquely. Luke. I am the true vine. John mentions the Holy Spirit the most times by name in this one. Luke. Yes. The only gospel where Jesus is distinctly called a carpenter. Mark. Excellent job. Isn't that the, that's the carpenter. Isn't it cool how you guys, are, look what you're doing. You're doing what's called critical thinking, not thinking critically. That's different. But where you're using your knowledge now and you're applying it, it's beautiful. And you'd be like, where was that text? I am. That's clearly the gospel, John. In this gospel, Jesus decrees that those claiming to be the sons of the kingdom at the moment will be cast out into outer darkness. Matthew. He's like, the king has the right to tell you who really belongs in the kingdom. In this gospel, Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven suffers violence until John. Matthew. That's that kingdom again. Of heaven. The leper Jesus cleansed was in his last physical stages of his leprosy in this one. Yeah, isn't that great? Looks like this guy wasn't just a leper. This guy, I tell you, he was stage four leprosy. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way to choose the life. I am the good shepherd. This one shows the necessity of prayer. Excellent. This one has over 90% exclusive material. John. Excellent. In this gospel, it appears as if Jesus' own family comes for him, assuming Jesus has gone mad by working himself to death. Mark. That guy's really serving till he dies. The Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. Luke, remember, that was... That was the, so the parable of the lost coin, Luke. Parable of the lost sheep, Luke. Parable of the lost son, Luke. Which one shows a special interest in medicine? Well, that's a hard one. All right. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls. Matthew. Kingdom of heaven is like a man that sowed good seed in a field. I am the gate to the sheep. John, right. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Mark is right. Kingdom of heaven is like leaven. Matthew. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? 
Luke. There's the Holy Spirit again. By the way, there will be, and we'll talk about when we get to John, Jesus teaching us who the Holy Spirit is and what he does will be in John because God tells you about God. But our necessity, our needing the Holy Spirit and God giving you the Holy Spirit, that, of course, is going to be Luke. Because, again, as a human being, we need that. But, man, it's so great for God to teach you about who he is. So, all right. Uh, okay. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field. Matthew. Matthew, do you guys realize how you're blasting through this? No, maybe not all of you are answering, but I know you're all thinking the right answer. <laughs> kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet. Matthew. Matthew. These things are in seminars or sermons. Matthew, so like Sermon on the Mount, Sermon of Ascending, and we'll get that next week. This one tells us the parable of a friend who comes at midnight but keeps on knocking until his friend answers and helps him as an example of persistent prayer. Luke, excellent. Jesus declares a sermon of woes on those who have been in power but are abusing people with that power. Matthew, because it's a sermon. Kingdom of Heaven is like a landowner. Matthew. A sermon on greatness in the Kingdom of Heaven. Who is the greatest? Matthew with the sermon. Which one? I hate like kind of interesting. Which one focuses on love the most? John. John. Shows us a miracle of creating water, I'm sorry, creating wine out of water. John, who else could do that? Exclusively the Good Samaritan parable, I'm sorry, yes, showing a decent human. Luke, seeking and saving. This one appraises the amount of items the most, gives us their values. Matthew, that's what tax collectors do all for a living. <laughs> that's worth it. Records the most mentions of tax collectors. Matthew. Have you ever thought about when you read the Gospel of Matthew this week, by the way, see how many times Jesus goes, you know, tax collectors do that, and there was a tax collector, and that was this guy, and they went to pray, and the tax collector was forgiven. Now, I remind you, for us, we're like, well, that's cool, because I'm kind of a rotten guy like that guy is. But for a tax collector like Matthew, he's like, it's pretty easy to put yourself right in that story, isn't it? And imagine Jesus looking to these religious leaders and going, well, this was the guy that walked out forgiven, and then, you got it. Anyway, that's just kind of fun. Okay. Jesus says, show me the tax money. Matthew, yeah, you got it. And this, in this Yeris story, we read of a bleeding woman who had spent all of her livelihood on doctors and was no better but only poorer. Luke. Jesus had a one-on-one -on -one with a little dead girl. <laughs> that's a terrible way. <laughs> like, that's like French. A one-on-one with this dead girl. And calls to her, Talitha Kumi. Little girl, I tell you, then get up. She gets up. Mark, it's a one-on-one. -on -one. Kingdom of Heaven is like a man traveling to a far country. Matthew. Which one focuses on the dominion, Jesus having power over things, for instance, two blind men or two demoniacs? Matthew, our king. Which gospel shows us Jesus was driven by compassion to serve the leper, but making him clean? We learn that we must be driven by compassion and the most needy to be a servant God calls us to be. Mark, 
I don't you see when I know that that's what Mark is presenting and unique to Mark it says Jesus driven by compassion and I go I'm learning to be a servant I've got to be driven by compassion that's just cool Jesus is a one on one with a little d- women didn't I just say that one oh thank you alright good the kingdom of heaven is like a king who arranged the marriage for his son nephew because it's a king and a kingdom before Abraham was, I am. Now, you know, by the way, when you speak to those people who come to your door and you bring up this verse, because they've already been prepared to, to argue that. They're like, well, you realize what Jesus said was, I was. You know, like, wait a minute. You know, before Abraham was, I was. <laughs> and I go, and that proves he's not God because he was back when Abraham was anyway, so they'd stone him for bad grammar, you know. Anyways, the moment you try to rule out what the Bible says, you make crazier things happen. Which one tells us exclusively that Peter, upon Jesus' command, was given authority to walk on the water? Why? Because the king grants authority. Beautiful job, Maureen. In this 5,000 feeding account... Boy, I really worded that great. Jesus had had the servant disciples make the people sit down in ranks of 50 and 100 so they could be better served. Mark, excellent. Beautiful job. Which one gives us the sermon of the sending when he sends out his 12? Matthew, because it's a sermon. A parable of a religious leaders and a really lost publican who go to pray. Luke is right. And this one we see the conversion of a Zacchaeus, a man who was clearly lost. Luke, excellent seeking and saving. Jesus pulled a deaf and dumb man away to personally heal him one on one. Mark, unique to the Gospel of Mark is this story. The one gospel that says the twelve legions of angels are at Jesus' disposal if he wanted to deploy them. Matthew, that sounds like a king, right? I could deploy my army anytime I want to. At Jesus' arrest, a young unnamed man is also uh, almost caught by the arresting crowd. When they grab his garment, he escapes fleeing naked. Remember which one that was? Mark. That was a little relevant. I don't know if you're ever going to use that in counseling or something. But <laughs> for what it's worth, I do know where it's from. After Pilate asks Jesus if he's king of the Jews, his wife tells him to leave this innocent man alone. Matthew. Excellent. Matter of fact, on the cross it reads, this is Jesus, king of the Jews. Matthew. The one that tells us that John got to the tomb before Peter. Who would tell you that? John. John tells you. Matter of fact, he actually tells you three times in that text. And then John, who had gone there before Peter, and then says, and then Peter came following after. You kind of get an idea that if we were there, exactly, but he was following me because clearly I was there. Uh, I just you kind of get the idea if we were actually there watching the two of them, there would have been a there would have been a lot of competition between these two guys. You know. Okay, let's talk about the endings, and then we're how's that? And we're really close to eight thirty. How's that? Uh, even with stunning men. This one ends with the command of greatest service, go and preach the gospel to every creature. 
Mark, there's no greater service you can give someone than the gospel. This one ends with the command to go and make disciples. Matthew, a king, is deploying now, his team, giving them authority. As a matter of fact, you know what he says right before that? He says, all authority has been given unto me, so therefore, go. In other words, I grant you that authority. And that's not power like dunamis, where you're like strong. It's krakos, which means you have authority, like a, like a politician, you have authority granted. This one ends with the necessity of waiting for the power of the Holy Spirit. Luke, does that make sense? So here's the most amazing thing. You get the, you get the Matthew thing. King is granting authority now over his constituents. They'll go and, go and reach out, bring people into the kingdom. You know, Mark, the greatest servant, the greatest service, by the way, now go out and preach the gospel. Luke, you really need to wait, though, for the Holy Spirit. But presenting God, how do you end the gospel when you're focusing on God? Because, by the way, you won't see things like, for instance, the focus on ascension. You won't see Jesus ascending in the gospel of John, because that's not really the point. Do you know what ends? Jesus restores Peter, because that's what God does. As he restores. And Peter is restored at the end of John 21. How cool is that? So let me ask you, roughly, how many of you in here think that if you would have done this uniquely, having just used your mind from what you had already learned here, you would have been able to pull out maybe 80% of that? Which means you would have only gotten 20 wrong from this. Do you think you would have gotten that far? I, yeah, I think you would have. You guys were saying it. Do you realize you were asked 100 questions? You were asked in that of roughly at least 80 scriptures. And you've told me what book they came from. Now, I don't know whether you could have done that before we started today, but you can do it now. And wait now as we go over the next four weeks, as we go through each gospel, you'll even be more prepared. And what will happen at the end of it all is we'll do this again. And we will have, obviously, more things to add to this list. And we'll see how well you do at the end of it. How's that for a fun start? So here's your challenge now. This week you've got the Gospel of Matthew, 28 chapters. This one should be the one. How great to kick this off because we've been going through it for like 45 years now on Sunday morning. So, you know, you have already have a lot of that because I know you listen intently every time. And if you're not there, you listen to all the messages. So I know you already hear it all. So all of that to say this. This week should be a week where you should be fairly familiar with the material. But read it in the mindset that Matthew is being commissioned to show you he really is the king overall. There's the beauty in it. And if you want, I have books that are comparative books. In other words, they, are, um, they actually have the text in Matthew, and it compares that text to where, if that same story appears, in the other Gospels. So you can compare them and see the unique little differences. I mean, sometimes it's a word, sometimes it's a whole verse, sometimes it's other information altogether. It's so fun for me to do that kind of thing. Because then you realize, wow, I can see how this point that Matthew makes really shows us his authority or mark, or it shows me the issue of his service in this. That kind of stuff. I mean, it's intricate, but fun work. So anyways, I've done that so many times now because I like doing it. Okay. Now, are there any questions on what we've gone through today? Wow, so we've covered this much material, and you guys are solid? Okay.
The Messiah is the promised anointed one. Actually, Mashiach comes, is the word means anointed one. So who is anointed in the Old Testament? God makes clear, Messiah is the promised one, what God makes clear is he has to be the Messiah, the God, but he has to be king. So That's one of the reasons why the Jews still have a problem with Jesus being the Messiah. Because if he's the conquering king, how come he didn't destroy Rome when he came? And how come he did? Because he destroyed something more, uh, more lasting. You know, he described, he destroyed sin and our guilt. By the way, Rome's been and gone, with all due respect. I mean, as an empire, but sin still, every person still struggles with sin. Deborah might still struggle with Rome, but most of us don't. <laughs> so, you know. That's a good question, by the way. Okay. Any other questions? Okay. So this week, Matthew. Jump into Matthew. Again, I remind you, please try not to do it in seven days. Try to do it in six. You know, get some good time on it. Or if you're the kind that's real voracious, read it a couple times, too. You know. Again, the idea is get the feel for it more than just really in the intricities. And what happens when we're done with all this, you'll be like, oh, I want to go back and read that again. Honestly, I do. Okay. Well, having said that, Dennis, will you lead us in prayer tonight? Pray to conclude us tonight. <laughs> Didn't know you were coming for that. Father, I just want to thank you for this, this time together tonight, and and thank you for all the blessing what, what is coming from your word and. And although I, I missed uh, um, uh, quite a big part of it, uh, I'm, I'm really happy to to be here. And and just I just want to I just want to ask you to bless uh, the rest of our night and the rest of our week in Jesus' name. Amen.